Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. Uh, we are going to W.F. Twyman and I, W.F. Twyman Jr. We go by, he goes by Wink. We're going to start having conversations online a little bit more as our book is set to be out soon. Uh, we think it might be fun. We have these conversations, you and I, Wink, da- literally daily. And... And yeah, and, and and I mean, these are big conversations on how we like kind of navigate life, but this one was fun. So I'm going to just set the stage and, and you go. You were part okay. of a book club reading, is it Eric Fawner's Rec- uh, Reconstruction? Yes. Yeah. That's right. America's and, Unfinished Revolution or something. Okay. I have not read that book, by the way. But um, tell us... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying not to laugh. It's kind of, it's not funny, but it kind of is because we've made, because we're happy people and we've kind of made light of the whole situation. But, but tell us, tell us the background of the story. And I've got questions for you that I'll, that I've been pinging you oh, with sure. all along, but we'll let our, our listeners know. Sure. Sure. And, and, and in the interest of, of, of a jovial conversation, I'm going to try to use uh, pen names for the respective mm. players in this drama. So for the lead character, I'm going to say Mr. Klingon. And for the mediator, uh, Mr. Wolf, as in the character from Pulp Fiction by uh, Quentin Tarantino. But of course you had to have Klingon because of your star- love of Star Trek. So I love that. Okay. That's right. Kling- exactly. Klingon so and Wolf. Once upon I, can, a time, I can do this. A month ago. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I, I received an email from uh mr wolf who's a longtime friend of mine uh and uh mr klingon uh he is a lawyer somewhere in middle america and the the it was an invitation to join a book club to talk about the book reconstruction by eric bonner and i had two reactions one minor one major the minor reaction was well i like mr wolf we've been around the block a few years and you know he's interested i might be interested but more importantly I love Reconstruction. I mean, Reconstruction to me is like one of those, it's like a glorious revolution, if you will. It was a sacred time, decade in the 1870s, when so many positive institutions and associations and traditions were created in countless families throughout the South, Black families. So for those two reasons, I was like, okay, I'll do it. I'm a busy guy, but, you know, I'll make time to read the book. And so because I was so serious about reading the book and my interests, I took the time to read it carefully. And uh, I drew up about 15 or 16 questions ahead of time. These things that came to my mind. And I shot those by Mr. Wolf. And I said, well, you know, what do you think of this, Mr. Wolf? And he said, I think those are great questions, Wink. You should share those with the group. So naive me. Having no reason to think this would be the cause of any trauma, I shared my questions with the group. So when the book, with the, I'm sorry, I I I I view life as a joyous occasion. I really find joy in life, and so it's hard for me to really understand people who seem to be joyless about life. 
to me, a book club should be a lighthearted affair or if busy guys get together on the weekend or whatever to discuss things in the manuscript. So this was not to be the case. This book club was like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to mention the organization, but you know the organization well, Jen. It reminded me of an organization I went to a few years ago where everything was so scripted. There was so much process, worse you could say, worse you couldn't say. It took the joy out of it. Mm -hmm. And so I only went to the group once. This had that same vibe. It was it was a 90-minute book club meeting, and I kid you not. 45 minutes were devoted towards establishing norms for the book club. You know, what can we talk about? Who can raise their hand? What's the proper? And at one point, Mr. Wolf, who was eager to talk about the book, yes, I was, said, I think we should, we've had enough with this. Let's talk about the book. And I was just dying to ask questions. And so I raised my hand and I said, well, you know, I, I really enjoy reconstruction. I'm looking forward to this book club. And one of the things that troubled me was, the author uh, critiques in the preface this historian for portraying Blacks in Reconstruction as childlike. So I thought it was interesting that the Wait, author... Wait, can you repeat Bonner, that? That you thought... Sure, yeah. sure. He, well, he, he, he critiqued another historian whose name I can't recall okay. right now as characterizing Blacks as being like children, childlike during Reconstruction. Okay. And I get that critique. makes sense to me. Uh, but yet, Eric Fawner, the author of the book, in the book club discussion, either he chose or his marketing team chose to have the very front cover of the book be uh, four despondent Black children amidst devastation. And I just thought that seemed a little bit incongruent because Reconstruction is about rebirth not destruction. It's about the creation of things. And so I raised that question and all Hades broke loose. <laughs> uh, Mr. Cleon uh, seemed to be particularly triggered, as they say. <clears throat> and he he launched into a long diatribe about how we were missing the point and this historian raised 10 points and blah, blah, blah. And I think I may have made various interjections about things I knew about reconstruction from my private life, my family life. Well, long story short, I thought that was it. I thought that was the end of the thing, that he has his worldview, I have mine, but we'll all get together, enjoy the book, be lighthearted. <laughs> After the book club meeting ended, <laughs> Mr. Cleon sent the entire book club group this massive uh, email blast about Harvard University atoning for years of connection to slavery and reparations light and blah, blah. And I'm an honest guy. I li live in reality. So I just shot off a light email to the group saying, you know, thanks for sharing this email, Mr. Klingon, but I think this is a bunch of hokum. <laughs> My grandmother didn't care about slavery that much. She was born in 1897. Why should Harvard University be up at arms about it in the year 2022? I just thought it was ridiculous. And I was honest and just sent that message. My Lord, my Lord, Jennifer, what transpired after that can only be summed as the, up as the long war of the week of April 25th, 2022. As I shared with you, the, the next day, Mr. Cleon sent me a 25-paragraph 
primer, lecture, diatribe about how I was mistaken, how I was so wrong, how I didn't know the history of Reconstruction, how W.B. Du Bois really in Reconstruction in his book in 1935 laid it all on the line. And, and this just startled me because my honest comment about my feelings about slavery, let it go, move on, was just like one paragraph. They didn't warrant a 25-page campaign or war and peace. And so I immediately went to you and Mr. Wolf with my concerns. What's going on? Is this guy like, you know, a little on the edge or something? I was like, kind of like strangeness. Like in my world, in my world where I live, people, I belong to another book club and people feel perfectly free to share their ideas and thoughts and opinions about the book. The main, the, the, the book subject is Theodore Roosevelt. And it's great. It's wonderful. People take ideas. They share ideas. There's, there's no need for anyone to engage in almost a campaign worthy of, um, oh, what's the other uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, uh, movie where, oh, what is it? It's like two parts. It's like two parts where someone did someone wrong and the main What's actor pursues. Yeah, what's the name of it? What's the I name know what you're it? talking about. She's the sword wielding. Yeah. That's right. That's yes. right. What's the name of it? I don't know. Oh, I, I can't remember. We'll come, we'll come up with it later. <laughs> we'll come up with it. But, but so, so Mr. Klingon killing, was like killing, the character. Killing something. Killing something was the name. Killing Mr. Bill? No, I don't I Maybe. Okay. We're, we're right. too old. Anyways, Mr. It's so sad, Jennifer. <laughs> but the point is, the point is, Mr. Klingon was like that lady, right? He looked that protagonist. And I'm being pursued with these paragraphs, and it just seems all out of, all out of context, all out of uh, proportion to my, my lighthearted, you know, comment that, you know, American slavery let it go. His first sentence to me was, many people are in denial about American slavery. I don't think so. Um, you know, it's funny. When I got home, the first thing I said to my lovely wife was, did you know Mr. Klingon sent me a 25-page diatribe? And she said, well, Wink, I mean, you're many things. You're in denial about many things, but not slavery. That's not something you're in denial about. So that's all I need to know. Had my, my sweet wife had my back. <laughs> That was in reality once again. So I, I consulted with you, Jen, my lovely co-writer, and you advised me. You have a wonderful heart, Jen. You advised me to compose a one par one one paragraph. Let's repeat this, people. One paragraph diplomatic response to Mr. Klingon. <laughs> and it was a wonderful paragraph. It was just one paragraph. It was open hard. It was conciliatory. It presumed, it presumed good faith. How mistaken we were, Chen. <laughs> So I sent out this one paragraph, and I, and I really thought, well, that's the end of it. I'm moving on. i got other things to do in life. The sun is shining. The seagulls are swimming around the harbor. I'm the, this is behind me. I swear, within an hour or two, I get a 10-paragraph response to my one paragraph. All in French. And I, 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 I don't know. I was just, I laugh now because I tend to be a joyful person and I can see the humor in it. But at the time, it just seems so <clears throat> out there. And as you know, Jim, 
and I proclaim this to the world. I live by three principles. Do not use slogan words. Manipulations are the handiwork of bullies and never engage bullies. I consulted with Eugene, consulted with Mr. Wolf, and decided I needed to resign. And after a lot of, you would think that would be the end of it, that there were six more emails, I think, and oh then another gosh, four least. emails. I resigned this yeah. morning. And I'm moving on in life. It's a sunny day in San Diego. But that was our story for this week, Jen. Well, I So my question to you, okay. Jen, is okay. I know you love conversations and we need conversations. Is it possible for a person to have a conversation about American slavery with a dogmatist? That's my question to you. Well, I want to go through a couple. I will. I'll get to that question. Sure. Or to, I don't know if I have sure. an answer. But I'll get to trying to answer. Sure. But here's a couple of things that stuck out for me. And I wanted to see kind of your response because I haven't heard from you yet. I know that that uh, Mr. Klingon came back to you with a few questions. And I know I know that you um, also in one of your missives. And what what are your longer there, one there. of your longer uh, correspondences with with Mr. Klingon? You mentioned something to the extent of you know you you've lived the life of of a black man and you felt that he was silencing you and saying that your point of view didn't matter, which of course rubbed you the wrong way because you lived it. You actually lived it. I mean, am I correct in saying that? I think you can say I have lived it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fair statement. <laughs> um, so then, then one of Mister, one of the things that rubbed Klingon wrong. Can I just call him Klingon? Um, call him Klingon, <laughs> Mister Klingon. Yeah, Klingon and Mister Wolf. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that rubbed Klingon wrong, though, was he read into what you wrote as he could not be make any criticism and that the other stories like stories of yours that aren't stories of uplift, but are stories of pain should not be studied. And we should only study story and that other voices outside of yours don't matter because you think we should be only studying stories of uplift and not be studying the stories of pain and whatnot that were, I think, um, again, I haven't read the book, but I'm assuming were stories that were in Fawner's book. What? Oh, sure. Sure. What do you say to that? Well, of course. And there are many, many stories like that of pain in the book. And that's good. That's true. That was reality. That was a part of Reconstruction. That's great. <clears throat> My concern, and I said this in the book club meeting, um, is life is not black and white. Life is gray. Life is more than pain. Life is joy. Life is more than suffering. Life is triumph over adversity and suffering. So if we really want to get into the innards of Reconstruction, honestly, <clears throat> and live in reality, which is a good thing, to live in reality, we have to accept both the pain and the triumph over adversity. Case in point, as I read the book, uh, I, I kind of left the book club with a warning, not a warning, but a suggestion. I would be very interested in knowing what Mr. Fawner, the author, said about Howard University, because I know, I know like there's no tomorrow. 
that when it comes to black higher education and reconstruction, there is nothing more fundamental to black American memory than Howard University, founded in 1867 in the beginning of Reconstruction. Howard University was the, the North Star uh, for Black elevation. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, dentists, all of them trained there in the shadow of a dreadful civil war on a holy mission to return to the South and to apply their skills to uplift uh, Black people. That's just riveting. And that's a part of our American conversation. And I didn't see that Howard University was given its due in the pages I had read so far in Eric Foner. I mean, Foner mentioned Hampton, one word. He mentioned maybe Morehouse, one word. He even mentioned General O.O. Howard, the man for whom Howard University is named after. He gets paragraphs in the book, but not the Black institution that would then lead to the elevation of Black Americans over generations. Come now. Come on. So that's what annoyed me. And I suspect that annoyed Mr. Klingon, Klingon, because he felt I was probably pulling the quote unquote race card against him. In fact, Mr. Wolf, in my private consultation uh, a few days later, said that Klingon had been calling. Mr. Wolf, several times to express his feelings. And one thing which stung uh, Klingon was my reference to, well, you know, did you grow up as a black school grader in first and second grade in the South? Did you grow up in the South? Have you been to the campus of Howard University? Have you studied in Founders Hall and felt the blessed touch of ancestors over your shoulders? Or do you only know what you know because you've read books about Black culture and Black consciousness? I don't like to do that, my dear Jen. In fact, that's probably one of the few times in my life of 60 years, maybe one or two or three times, where I've done that. But to me, it was so compelling to say that because sometimes people get so lost in abstraction and theory and books and seminars and slogan words. You, you leave actual Black people we're creating institutions behind in the dust. I just can't take it. I can't stomach it. No more. You know, if you're going to read a book about Reconstruction, then you're going to read about Howard University, and we're going to talk about Howard University, and we're going to talk about George B. Bashan, the first Black professor at Howard University, and we're going to talk about John Mercer Langston, who created the law school at Howard University. You know, I don't have time for appearances. I don't have time for artifice showmanship, nonsense, virtual signaling. For me, institutions like Howard University and the Ebenezer AME Church, I mean, that's part of my ancestral hook. It's how I came into the world. So when you dismiss those things, you're dismissing my ultimate roots, and I don't have time for it. Because, as we know, the Twyman Doctrine I don't engage bullies in the story. Okay, so so I'm going to go back to your question to me um, with kind of, I, I, here's what I'm thinking as I'm hearing you talk, because I, I know you. Sure. And, I, and I've learned so, you know so much about from- Am I am I a bully, Jim? No. 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 Uh, but, but you have, this is, 
it, you're not a bully, but he did hit on something that you, um, that is a, 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 a leverage point where you, for you, where you, you won't go past this, the nonsense you, you, because of your rules, no slogan words. And there was a lot of do- and dog, I would go past the no slogan words and you don't, you don't deal in dogma. And so there was a lot of dogma. Don't do dogma. I do friends. Right. I do Mr. Wolf because he's a friend. Don't do dogma. But here's, here's what, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to push back a little bit on you. Go right ahead. So in answering the question you asked me, I would give. I feel like I'm in the conference Klingon room for the enterprise. <laughs> a little great grace. Uh-huh. And I'm going to, let me tell you why. Because so many, when you look at, and you know this wink, when you go to a library yeah. and you look at, you know, um, black literature or a lot of the, uh, what, what, what is in mainstream media right now, everything yeah. is doom and gloom. You know, this you, oppression, it, blackness is, you, you say this because your darling daughter told you this blackness is oppression. My sweet daughter. Nothing else yes. matters. And so yes. Klingon is hearing that he's not hearing that just from white people. He's hearing that from very educated black people as sure. well. And so while that has solidified into a dogma that is hard to talk around, he, I believe that Mr. Klingon was in his mind coming to the conversation in good faith, in an attempt to, if you will, repent for what the ancestors of our fathers. And I know that you disagree with that. We can talk about that in a minute. But, no problem. But that is the predominant narrative. And I think if you are a good faith person, I mean, and I, I do think that he actually, he probably thinks he is good faith. It really is. Oh, I'm sure he is. He does. Until I had a conversation with you and you told me exactly what you just said right now and said, you are doing me a disservice when you look at history and culture and whatnot like this. You were the first person who said that to me. Which is why we're now why writing a book is, together. Why do you think that is, Jen? Why do you think that was the case? Why was I the first person? Well, okay, I'm going to answer that, but let me say something. You're the. I have sure. had you know my story and and um my friends. I, and I love your story, by the way. Well, my friends, my my family friends who are, who I grew up with who are black, but at this point in American history, I just saw them as. Any other family, any other friend, there, there wasn't right. this na- national conversation around race, or I wasn't right. aware of it because to me, they interacted in our lives the same way anyone else interacted sure. in our lives. Right. So it's not like mm. up until now, you're the first person I've ever spoken to. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Um, you know, I've been surrounded by people of all different races all my life, but I will right. say that you are the first person who told me out and out. Outside of me reading it, I mean, you know, we're friends with Eric Smith. We're friends with you know other either the John McWhorters, the Glenn yeah. Lowry's, or we're not necessarily friends. we're friends with some of them, but not all. But anyways, we we, we know them. But you're the first sure. person who, to me right. as a friend, said when you say that this is how I feel. Every other message that I've gotten, both from white America and Black America, has been repent, 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 repent. And the same message mm-hmm. that your daughter shared with you: blackness is oppression. And so without hearing a voice like yours, that becomes the predominant narrative. And here's, here's where I would push back on you. 
do are sure. we doing a disservice? I know you don't engage bullies. I get it. And he, it, yes, the thirty six combined paragraphs to make his 36. point six was <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I'm I'm trying to give him some grace and thinking like, Dude. I don't know. Is it worth it to be in? This goes back to your question. Can we have conversations with people who are who are in dogma? I I, right. I want to have faith that yes, right? Because we, you and I conversations started around some of the same things. You told me point blank how you felt, and uh, and now a book is written out of it, right? And so right, maybe right. this <clears throat> Klingon would have taken a little more time, but we've got to change the dialogue. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm I throw the question back to you. Can we have sure. real conversations when dogma is the centerpiece? And, and and I will answer that question because I know, and I think this is to your credit, uh, you believe in power, persuasion, and influence. <clears throat> and I think that's a good thing. Good virtues. I support that. Uh, that warms my heart. Um, sadly, because I've read a number of essays and books and viewed some videos and I've thought about it. I think about it a lot, actually. I think that those virtues that you bring to the table that I like... <clears throat> only work when the person on the other side of the conversation is operating outside of dogma. Because that then means they're operating in good faith, they're willing to give and take, they can disagree without being disagreeable, all the things that create a higher level of understanding, which is what I seek in my conversations. I think dogma, as our wonderful friend Isabella uh, has mentioned, Isabella, Isabella Tabarowski, I think it is. Mm -hmm. She has said uh, that, you know, slogan words dumb us down. They inhibit us from an ability to fully engage the range of ideas and thoughts. Instead, you're constrained by a script. You're constrained by the need to manipulate others to your point of view. It's, it's kind of like proselytizing. John McWhorter uses the word religion. I can see that. But I think it reminds me more of, of proselytizers. It reminds me of, of almost missionaries in a sense, right? Uh, there is the way. There is the truth. And if you don't believe that, then there's something wrong with you. And I must persuade you. I must manipulate you. I must bully you. I must send you 36 paragraphs over a 12-hour period of time. Who does that? What normal sane person does that, right? Only someone who's possessed possessed by some kind of missionary fervor. So that's why, sadly, Jennifer, I think people of good faith who believe in persuasion influence should do that, but they should also cut their losses at the water's edge of dogma. I think dogma is the greater risk we all face in the development of a higher level of consciousness about life. When you live in dogma, when you live in dogma, you're most threatened by people who live in authenticity, by people who live in reality, by people who live in true freedom of expression, by people who live in the dignity of the individual, the dignity of the human. People who live in dogma have abdicated their individual consciousness, their conscience. They've abdicated their individual sense of responsibility towards reality. I think it's a form of, I think it's a consequence of mass formation, which I've mentioned earlier in our conversations. I think that people 
only can think of the world in pre-approved slogan words. And so that's why you see this strange, almost rotting essence to those who are possessed by dogma, because they're threatened by reality. When I bring to the table to cling on what I know from five generations of family history, that must rock his world. That must like rock his little world, right? What do you mean blacks are pride and have dignity? What do you mean blacks have a sense of walking upright? What do you mean black people were acquiring hundreds of acres of land and forming families? What do you mean black people were forming churches, African Methodist Episcopal churches? What do you mean black people were forming their own schools? I'll have none of it. I'll have none of it because it threatens my dogma. And so I will seek out and manipulate and bully and crush the uh, the dissident. So that's why I'm a dissident. <clears throat> I'm a dissident because I see the bad consequences of dogma in civil society. Poor Glenn Lowry, we much, both respect. The other night I was watching a YouTube video and he was talking with um, someone and he was so sad because he could see how a system of manipulations are being institutionalized in colleges and universities. I mean, things like die. I use the word die on purpose. <laughs> now I've grown beyond just doing it, using it lightheartedly, but because what but, happens but we is, have for um, our listeners, it's D E I. You use die right, because right, they're right. <laughs> okay. So go on. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. So what happens is, you know, people are increasingly frozen in place they're unable to think freely. The permissible realms of discourse are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And so, you know, Lowry was just very sad about that because he didn't know where that was ending up. And he felt that we were sacrificing dignity, the dignity of Black people for some imagined greater collective good. Mm. And it was just kind of sad. He's a guy in his 70s. He's seen a wide range of history. I don't think he would have been despondent in the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1970s or the 1980s or the 19... Why, why is it that the likes of Kimberly Crenshaw and Kendi and Coates have bequeathed to us this legacy of despondency and despair and joylessness in our public discourse? I mean, they are the true... They are the true creators of destruction of intellectual worlds. And I think that we must always avoid bullies because then we can lessen the influence of manipulators because the bully's handiwork is manipulation of language, of words, of public discourse. And they do it under the rationale of, well, you know, we've got to reverse the sins of racial injustice. We've got to reverse the sins of racial inequality. You know, it's so sad. Um, I think ordinary people are hungry for real stories about real people and their real family trees. And that's what I'm all about. That's a long answer, Jen. Sorry, but that's kind of how yeah, I kind of feel about it. Well, I'm, I've, I've got a, a couple of things. I mean, the first thing is I don't know. It's to so many people. And here's the problem with slogan words. And like you said, where we're going with so many people, mm -hmm. dogma is reality. It is reality. Um, it is, it is. And, and so I don't know, like when you're, it's like, you know, fish in water, you don't know that 
hey, the water's fine. You're like, what water, right? You know, I mean, this is this. And so I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I guess like that's a question. But then my other question is, do you dismiss or how would you answer? I, I, I looked at Klingon, some of the questions that Klingon asked you. How would yeah. you answer? What did you think, by the way? Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you one of them because, I, I mean, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but I think that they are questions that I, – I don't think those questions betray a reality. I think they be, they're dogmatic, but I think that dog, dogma is the new reality, and, and that's scary enough as it is. Um, yeah. That we don't even see that we're living swimming in those waters, but let me, so let me. But I think some of these questions bear asking openly because this is this is I, I'm not surprised by the questions he gave. So one of the things was, you know, and I know part of this is because it's just you. You you are a person who is happy. You are optimistic, so you look at things <laughs> in a certain light. That's just who you are. It doesn't matter where you right. came. You just how you were. You know, you sure. were made. Um, but what would you say? One of the things that Klingon asked was, is your life and your history of resiliency and strength, does that mean that other stories of pain and hardship don't matter? Should we just wipe those out and only tell the stories of resiliency and strength? Is that, how do you answer him with that? Sure. All stories matter. So that's my first impulse. All stories matter. And I believe that, and that's genuine. All stories matter. Um, I also know that if you presume one's duty in life is to uplift oneself and one's family and one's neighborhood, then positive stories do that more than negative stories. I think there's a professor, Martin Sicklitman, uh, who has written a book about positive psychology that sometimes the very words you use and tell yourselves can have an impact on your success in life and your even your, your physical health. Um, we all return to our individual life stories, and I will, with, in answering this question, when I was growing up in uh, Chesterfield County, Virginia, one of the things I used to read all the time at Grandma's house on Terminal Avenue was Black Enterprise Magazine, and Black Enterprise Magazine was just simple. It was a wonderful magazine founded in 1970 by Earl Graves Sr. And it was just constant stories of Black entrepreneurs, Black businessmen, Black doctors, Black lawyers, Black people doing positive things. Like there was always like the list of the 100 top Black businesses in America. And for a kid to read that from the age of 9 through 18, such... You couldn't think of a better stupendous platform for engaging the larger world than to know, well, race really isn't in, that important because there are m- many people who are achieving many things and they share your same race. Whereas if you gave that same kid, let's call it not a Black Enterprise magazine, but a Black Pain magazine. Imagine, what would that do for to the little kid if he read a Black Pain magazine every week for nine or ten years as a kid? He would be despondent. He would be the most sad sack adult imaginable. I think I think the stories we tell ourselves matter. And, you know, I don't get off on pain. I prefer the stories I grew knew growing up in Black Mac, Black Enterprise magazine. 
Is that a, is that a good answer? Yeah. Or am I evading no, the question? No, I think, let me, let me kind of repeat <clears throat> what I heard to make sure that we're on the same sure. page. I think, and I know, uh, like I said, I know you, you, you don't, I mean, you and I, when we started writing together, you made me read Thomas Wells, American Slavery as it is, which was a thousand, yes. I mean, a thousand stories of the most horrible, brutal crimes against humanity. You, right. I couldn't even, we, we, we couldn't even converse really. I mean, you weren't that hardcore, but you know, I mean, that was, yeah. that was something that was very important to you. And so um, dismissing slavery and dismissing the pain of it is not you, I because I know you. And yet I think, right. so I think that the world that we live in and this dogma that we're playing with is very either or either mm. it, it, either you teach um, slavery and, and oppression or you it's all about patriotism and, you know, George Washington was great. And, you know, all these mythical stories, there's no, there's not one or the other. And I was talking to someone the other day and I said, why don't we just teach history? Like the good, the bad, the ugly. We can teach slavery. We can also teach that the founding fathers yeah. did have good ideas. They were flawed, like everyone it was, sure. but they exactly. had good ideas. And so we're in, yeah. we live in this very um, binary world where it is very black yeah. and white. I think you said that at the very, at the very beginning. There, there. We don't allow for shades of gray. Um, right, and you have to because that's life. That's life. That's reality. That's the world we live in. If you don't like it, you can't just create theory <laughs> to create a different reality. It doesn't work, right? So, you know, look, I, I've said this to you before, Jen. I mean, I think that the real hope will be in the next generation, our children's children. Because mm. kids are going to grow tired of hearing blackness is oppression, nothing else matters, day in and day out in classrooms and public spaces. Because it's not, one, it's not going to be true. And two, kids are going to rebel against that. It's almost a monstrous, grotesque alienation of your inner identity from this created larger public identity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. People want to live in a line with who they are on the inside. People don't want to conform uh, in lies. Some people do. Some people don't have a problem conforming in falsehoods. Um, I'm not that way. And I suspect that it will be the dissidents of the next generation who turn things around. Well, so case in point, the 1619 project. Yes, I was, I was bringing that up too. I was, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about this. Yeah. <laughs> what are my thoughts on that? It falsifies the past. It falsifies the present. It falsifies the future. It falsifies itself. You can't create a sustainable national story on falsehoods. That's my take. Well, I think this is where we both are in response to, I think that you uh, going back to what I was saying, like how we, we read about slavery and the horrors of it. I think your thing is yeah. this both and right. Like it, read this, read, read Thomas Weld, but also read about John Mercer Langston also read about Howard. Yeah. And so you and I created the alternative 1619 reading project and it wasn't to dismiss 1619, even though I know you do, do dismiss some of it, but it was like, if you read this, and we literally went essay by essay. If you read sure. that, also read this. So it wasn't even, sure. we, we weren't saying ignore it. It's bunk. Um, even though, again, I know you feel like some of it is. <laughs> it was It was more of a, okay, read that and then read this. And then let's, like, let's actually yeah. think critically sure. about these sure. two different narratives. And, where, where, and then that, to me, that is the only way to get back to reality. 
And I think that's oh, good. That's good. I think that's what you were trying to offer to Klingon was okay. We've read this. We've we've read these stories. Now hear this other story. And I don't know that Klingon. You know, I, I from the emails, I think that he um, was willing to listen, but he but he wasn't willing to give it the same weight as his interpretation. Does do you that think Klingon can? Yeah. Do you think Klingon can only perceive black people as slaves and descendants of slaves? That was a thought that occurred to me a few days ago. Like me, I conceive of black people as the embodiment of Black Enterprise magazine and great ancestors doing things, great things, and great first and second grade teachers. Could it be that his isolation from real black culture and consciousness means he lives in a false apprehension of blackness. Here's what I, what do you think? I I think, you know, he, he pushed back when you suggested that some of his knowledge of black America came from books. Um, Because Mm -hmm. Klingon is um, of the same hue as I am, same shade as I am. Um, I think that, I think there's much to be learned with books, but I wonder, I wonder if he doesn't have any engagement and if he does have with, with people who look differently than him. And if he does, maybe it is. I mean, again, even if he, this is why I said we need to give him some grace week, because even if he mm. does have engagement with people who had different life experiences, some might be saying using the same language that we are fighting against. And so, um, true. You know, I I don't, I don't know if I answered your question, but. I you did somewhat. You did somewhat. I, I, I understand the grace thing. Uh, you know, I'm not a total um, <laughs> closed-minded person. Uh, I understand it. But to me, um, we are living too much in a system of appearances that are alienated from reality. And we have too many people who then use manipulation and slogan words to bully people into um, buying into appearances that are detached from reality. And I think a healthy way to slow that down is to say in your own personal life, you know, I'm not going to engage bullies and I'm not going to engage manipulations because that's the handiwork of bullies. And if we do that, if more and more people do that, maybe people will decide, hmm, maybe I should circle back and rethink my accusation that this guy from Richmond, Virginia, who happens to be a Black American and happens to be a descendant of Reconstruction, is in denial about American slavery. Because that's a pretty strong statement to lead off, don't you think? In denial about American slavery. There's no denial. You just are looking for um, tempering that story with the story of triumph. Um, my grand, <laughs> once again, I could not imagine my wonderful grandmother teaching her grandchildren, okay, come over here, grandkids, come to the table. And I want you to know, blackness is only about oppression. It's nothing else. And I want you to know that, uh, we were slaves and never forget it. No. And only in an alternative universe would my grandmother have ever done such a thing. My grandmother, 
we've lost, I think, some common sense, I think, about how we speak about race and understand Black history, I think. I really do. And I think, I'm going to go deep. Let's go deep a little bit, like Lynn Lowry. I think part of it is that there's too much social isolation in America. Chen, you are wonderful. But it is true, you're probably in a minority in terms of your willingness to engage these issues deeply. I think uh, Charles Love may have mentioned that uh, once or twice. For many people, I think, who are white, this is just something distant. There's a vague sense of guilt. You really don't have firsthand knowledge. So you turn then to the loudest voices in the choir. Mm -hmm. And if the loudest voices in the choir have a self-interest in dogma, you're just going to get more dogma. And you're going to respond to that. You're going to appease that. And they're going to give you more dogma so they can get more goodies and profits and offices and resources and whatever. So that's really the problem. The problem isn't so much Klingon, but the fact that, like many people, he doesn't have the home family experience of, of a black grandma yeah. who grew up in the South. But you know, we, he, doesn't, he doesn't have that lived experience. I, no, I agree, but you have to know. And I think you do, but uh, speaking as again from someone, sadly, because I really hate the labeling us based on what we look like out here, but speaking as someone with less melanin, um, and I appreciate what you just said, and I appreciate that Charles Love recognizes too that I'm willing to have these conversations, but you know what? It's because I I work for myself and I work with people who also are, are courageous in that way. It's not been easy um mm-hmm. and i'm sure it's not been easy for you too so but but y- you're not to question the dogma often leaves one in a place that threatens their their well-being and st- stability and financial stability i mean we've seen that oh, time right. and time sure. again right right um right. and right. so you know i mean when you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, <laughs> and you think of like the basic, right? Like a roof of your head, you know, and food, right, right, right. um, we're brought down to, to, to that basic. And, and I mean, I'm just blessed that I've got the ability to, to work, you know, mm. in certain circles, but not everyone does. And so mm-hmm. because of that, I think also we can't have, some of these conversations without uh, serious repercussions. So I appreciate sure, that sure. I've been, I've been said, but you know, it's, 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 I don't, I'm, I, I, I recognize how people would feel when, when you are in a position that I think a lot of Americans find themselves in. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, you know, I mean, how can I put it? Um, I return to your point about grace. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to show grace because I, I do think that's a part of being human, humanity. That's part of being a good person. Um, I balance that with what I can foresee, what the foreseeable consequences are if dogma grows more and more and more powerful. Because, I mean, I kind of, how can I put it? I feel like on the surface, I grew up in a horrible, terrible time, right? The 1960s, 1970s, Southern state, Civil War, things every... How could I survive? And yet, Jen, if you just scratch the surface a little bit, it was almost a golden time to grow up, mm-hmm. right? I mean, 
people really, really were going to school for the first time, regardless of racial segregation, you were creating experiences, shared experiences together. You were learning about each other. You were engaging a larger world. You were putting old prejudices aside. And I kind of feel like this generation is the opposite. You're relearning prejudices. You're mm. relearning biases. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's so sad in a sense. Mm. So, yeah. And I think it's because of dogma. I think dogma, the stronger dogma gets, the more regression and retrogression we're going to see. And that's you know, a sad thing. I want to like ask you like one. It's a big question, so be the final question today. We don't want to uh, exhaust our listeners, sure. but right. I based on what I just told you, where I feel like dogma is reality. Mm-hmm. How I mean, I here's my worry, and I'm optimistic. I try to live joyful, like you, but I have to mm-hmm. tell you, my true worry is when we saw dogma playing like this before. I mean, it was during the, the, the cold war and kind mm. of, you know, with our friend, Isabella Taborowski, who, who likens some of the trends she's seen now in America to what she saw in the Soviet union, which eventually collapsed. How do we as a nation move away from this false reality without completely mm. crashing first? Is that possible? Hmm, that's a good question. <clears throat> um, I think it is possible. So how will it happen? Uh, and I take my insights from a lot of what happened in Prague in the 1960s and 70s. I, As you I recall, have to interrupt you. I brought my cup of Czech Republic cup. Oh, because cool. I knew that we were going to talk about. <laughs> you knew it. There's my. I just have my regular old cup here. <laughs> but I, I was like, as I was picking my cup for today, I was like, I know the Czech Republic is probably going to come up. So there you go. Sure. All right, so sure. about Prague, go on, go on. <laughs> well, there's a there's a very famous essay by Havla, the playwright, who later became the head of Czechoslovakia, Slovakia. But his um, essay was called "Power of the Powerless." And he lived in times similar to where we are going. When he lived in Prague in the 60s and 70s, there was a a, a suffocating, deafening uh, dogma. The entire system was dogma. And what one did was one made their peace with dogma, right? Just to get along, to get along. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you spouted slogan words you didn't believe in. Mm -hmm. Um, You voted in elections that didn't matter. You would place signs uh, in your grocery store, Workers of the World Unite. You didn't have any great enthusiasm for the slogan, but you did it because the system demanded fidelity. Um, But what happened was, and I think this is so true uh, in our society as in that society in the 60s and 70s, slogan words and manipulations can never totally stamp out Uh, the dignity of the human person, the human life. I mean, at root, people um, think because everyone has an individual brain and an individual life story and individual personality. And people don't like to be forced away from from their authentic inner selves. So I think that as the dogma 
grows stronger and stronger, you're going to have more and more dissidents like you and me and a few other people who are going to see that incongruence and it's not going to sit well. And we're going to have the, the resources or the good fortune to, um, to write about it, to talk about it. And it's interesting because it's not about politics. It's not about winning elections. It's about creating parallel structures like counterweight that we belong to, where people can freely express their concerns free of dogma and think about ways in which we can uh, exist in a better place, a better society free of dogma. So what I think will happen, Jen, to, to, to wrap it up, I think over time there will be more and more dissidents in the U.S., who write plays and novels and books mm. and essays expressing the longing of the human spirit to come forth through the crust of lies and falsehoods and dogma. And that these parallel structures like counterweight or fair or your group, um, the, the Institute liberal, liberal values, I think, mm -hmm. or, I, I'm messing it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> But I think the parallel structures will come together, and then that will be the greatest threat to the system of dogma. Because think about it, they're going to lash out. People who are invested in dogma, like Klingon, will lash out viciously. But if you have enough parallel structures throughout society, when that comes forth, the thing, whole thing will collapse because it's kind of built on falsehoods and creations anyway. Reality sticks. Appearances and illusions and delusions don't stick for long. They just don't. So I think that's the long-term goal is for there to be more and more parallel structures of artists and playwrights and novelists and writers and essayists to keep these ideas alive, even while dogma dominates in the institutions. So that the day will come when these parallel structures will kind of come together and expose that the emperor has no clothes and the system hopefully will right itself. That's just my thinking, my long-term thinking. Well, then I guess we're playing our part. And I suggest... That's true. You know, yeah, and I suggest for our next book, uh, I think we already have a title, The Dissidents. Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> poor we should go there. Poor, we should go. <laughs> poor Klingon is going to debut it. He wanted, you know, he, he he wanted to make his or you know, history is important. So this maybe this conversation will, right. will make history. Oh, oh, I'm curious, Jed. I'm curious. So you you kind of so he he wants did he want us to be on his podcast? Yes. And what did you make of that? I have to think about that some more. I'm not, I'm not sure. Do you think I should? Ash. No, I, I always say that because, you know, you know, do you anticipate constructive dialogue? Do you anticipate a revel, uh, Raising your consciousness to a higher level? Do you, do you anticipate, you know, um, a euphoria of understanding with Cleon? Do you anticipate running through the flower patch of goodness and mercy and 
human dignity and freedom of speech and common humanity and a colorblind society where American slavery is buried and put to rest and where we all join hands and see the humanity in one another and we treat others as we would have others treat us, according to the golden rule. Do you see that happening? Probably not. I'm, I'm not. I'm thinking that I would probably be um, peppered with facts and his, you know, but but facts that like oh, like that are recognized, but don't have relevance necessarily for our, our future. Um, facts around oh, good facts point. around good point. slavery and Jim Crow and whatnot. You know, I mean, I think that some of those facts have had 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 long term effects, which I don't that Mm. I don't disagree with. I mean, I think you actually disagree with that more than I do. Um, Probably. Yeah. yeah. But I would say where where you and I are agreement are. okay. like, let's look at, you know, some of these historical things and how they've affected our current moment. But if we're going to let we we, right now in our current moment, we have a choice of whether or not we let them affect the future. Yeah, and the way we're talking right now, it will be it will continue to affect our future negatively. Yeah. By the way, the, the 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 language and the words that we're using to describe the past and even even trauma into the present. That's why words, we are. Con- Go ahead. That's why words are so important. Mm-hmm. The words you use, in a way, channel your thoughts. So if you use words of despair and despondency and gloom and doom and depression, what kind of people are you creating? What kind of society are you creating? Mm-hmm. Um, if you use words of <clears throat> excellence, outstandingness, triumph, steadfastness, perseverance, self-reliance, self-dignity, self-worth, those kind of words, if drilled into, not drilled, but if they're learned by kids and teenagers that creates a different kind of society right right so when you walk down the street you see an individual not an oppressed person so you walk down the street you see someone who's an infj not someone who's a white female right so when you walk down the street you Mm -hmm. see a fellow uh compadre uh a hermit living and writing in jerusalem israel you don't see, you know, surface features. I'm all about that. And maybe that's my personality, Jen, as you suggested when we started this video. Maybe I was genetically created just to take people as they are on the inside and to really see that the surface is surface. And it always amazes me when people don't do that. Uh, and they kind of view me as, what well, to use your husband's term, uh, what is a unicorn or something y- like unicorn, that? Unicorn, yeah. That's that stuck with me. So, <laughs> I'm I'm just me. I'm just me. It's just, I, but I do think, I think if there were more dissidents in America, America would be a better place over the coming ten and twenty years. Mm. We don't we don't need more conformists. We don't need more dogmatists. We don't need more Klingons on the email. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to me but we, we need more people of grace to use your word we need more grace in the land we need people who love we need people who smile we need people who joke we need people we need people 
who see someone different and think, I want to get to know you. I'm a feel I am attracted to you because you are different. Not, well, I can only be attracted to other people who are black and female like I am, or black and male as I am, or white and male as I am. Or I mean, what kind of a crazy world is that, Jen? I mean, what kind of a crazy world is that when you can only feel uh, an inherent kinship and attraction to people who share your surface traits. That's weirdness to me. That is such mm. a, and it's it's just so strange to me. Um, now, I know the feeling of family. I certainly do. As I was sharing with you, I'm I'm so warmed that my my cousins are like excited about the manuscript. But what gets me is, I view my cousins in black and white. Some people think that's kind of strange. How could a black American have and feel warmly about cousins in all races. I think that attitude is strange. You can't see that family can exist independent of race. And that, do you think, no, that we're going to stop there because that is such an awesome question and we have to have that conversation. But that is, we do. That's going to, that's, that's going to be another like in-depth conversation about looking at our family and seeing the going across the divisions within our own family and how that's so important for, I mean, when we talk about how do we make change in this world of dogma, I think that's the solution. So let's, family. let's save, uh, yeah, family and, and, and the search, the search for family that is the search for family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The search for family. And, or how we ditch the Klingon. <laughs> oh, you know. You know what's funny? You know what's funny? If the Klingon were on this podcast, he would not laugh once. There would be no smile. Oh, no. No, no humor. No. Nothing. You, right, you can't right, laugh right. about these things. These are not laughing matters. Right. Not laughing. <laughs> that's one thing we've just... We have in this new world where it's just nothing's, yeah. I mean, some things, it's not that slavery's supposed to be fun, but again, we're like looking at the, like, we're trying to grab hold of the joy in life and bring that into the future instead of grabbing hold of the pain in life and bring that into the future. And so it's not diminishing our sure. history by saying, right. oh, like, let's just. Well, I know you say, let's get over it. I'm like, well, I'm not saying get over it, but I'm saying like, you know, we don't have to carry it, slavery into the future. Um, yeah. And so that, yep. that is, it's, it's, it's a joyless, it's a joyless space because that was a joyless time, but we have the choice now of whether or not we carry that with uh, how we, how we, sure. how we carry that history with us. My parents had the choice. My grandmother. I guess that's what so amuses me is it's like we're rediscovering American slavery in 2020. I know. That's like strange to me. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, kudos, kudos to all of the um, <clears throat> believers and slogan words and woke ideology. I mean, they've done a great job. Have they, have they not? I mean, they really have made a generation of kids feel like this is like something new, breaking news. Future Slave Act in 1745 in Virginia. <laughs> Breaking news. I mean, well, like I said, it's strange. it's the new reality. <clears throat> yeah, but because it's because it's dogma, it's a thin crust of laws. So it's not it's not sustainable, right? Well, we can only hope. 
uh, you know what? Unless we become North Korea, <laughs> or unless we become, you know, uh, some some place like that, I just think the American spirit. I think that people, when they go home at night, know that they are human beings first and foremost, and that they want to have dignity, and no one enjoys being forced or manipulated to mouth slogan words or to hold certain signs in public. One of the reasons I love Jordan B. Peterson is he tells it like it is, right? Mm. Is that there's a certain corrosive tyranny when you force people to mouth slogan words in the public square. Because then you have alienated your public persona from your internal self. And that's a weak person. That's a demoralized. That's it. It's demoralization. The reason why people seem more and more joyless, in part, is because they're demoralized by the consequences of enforced conformity with dogma and slogan words. Who can be happy if you know that you have to watch every single word you say or that you don't know whether or not someone will rat you out or report you to um, uh, the commissar or... uh, you know, I, I, it's, 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 it's a, it's not good. It's not good. But we need more courage. We need more courage. And one of the things I love about the dissidents, and I consider Lowry a dissident, McWhorter a dissident, David Bernstein a dissident, Chloe a dissident, uh, you a dissident, uh, Charles Love. We, we will make the better future but we may not live to see it. Mm. So that's our, I think that's our duty. Our duty is to help create the, the tools and the intellectual space to create the better future so that the ch- grandchildren will know there was, a be- there was a better way one day, that there was a time before 2020 and 2010, there was a time when we focused more on who was the person on the inside and less on who was the person on the outside. Mm. It's about congruence. The more you align your public self and your private self together, the more they're aligned, the happier you're going to be, the more content you're going to be, the more joyful you're going to be, the more you're going to laugh, the more you're going to give thanks and, and show gratitude for the wonderful, wonderful opportunity to be born in this country, the United States of America. Uh, I've, I've written before that it's the greatest country ever ever in history. Many people don't say that, but I certainly think that. Um, I believe that. Uh, and, it, and it's true because of the ideas from the founding fathers, from the Declaration of Independence and from the Constitutional Convention. And it is so small when people can only see the greatest minds in history as mere owners of slavery or not. And that's, that's so myopic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's the loss of discernment. People no longer can discern. It's funny. I wrote an essay about letting go of American slavery. And my sweet daughter said to me something, blah, 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 blah. I've checked. This is whatever. And then she said to me, dad, what is nuance? So like in her, and she was like a teenager, like 15 or 16. It's so like in her fancy prep school, 
they had never like learned what the word nuance is. And I just wondered, was that like intentional? Is there such a focus on wokeness and dogma that we don't teach kids words like nuance? Well, we don't teach critical thinking. Hmm. Or even our logic or reason. But I thought that's what wokeness is all about. A critical consciousness, right? Mm. Praxis. Yeah, you disagree yeah. with that. <laughs> and that's fine. That's fine. When, I share your... Right. When right. when you are just, yeah, following the herd, that's not critical thinking. Sure. No. No, it's conformist. It's conformity. And conformity mm. will not make your country smarter. It will not make your country wiser. Conformity simply... It's like an atrophy. It, it, it like um, <clears throat> reduces your ability to speak the world, to speak the truth. So dogma lessens and lessens and lessens the acceptable ways in which you can communicate and understand the world. And only benefits those who want to have power and manipulate others. That's why I equate <clears throat> manipulations as just, as I said before, the handiwork of bullies. So not only do you not engage bullies, but you have to be quick to spot manipulations. So the way Kennedy talks about anti-racism, I'm at the place where I, I view anti-manipulation the same way. I view that as kind of like one's calling in life in these times. Because if you fight manipulation, be it language, slogans, whatever, then you're doing your part to weaken the uh, crust of dogma, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why Klingon, one of many reasons, why he became unhinged, because he probably expected me to succumb to the manipulations. I didn't. And, and my, 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 my power force, my safety zone was no bullying, because if I don't let bullies into my psychological space, I'm not letting the manipulations into my psychological space. So I can, so I'm a free man, right? That doctrine creates the freedom to really talk and engage and look at different issues. And it drives the bully up the wall because they can no longer play their games, right? Mm. It, the old tricks don't work because he could have stopped with one email or two. <laughs> or that's, that's manipulation, right? You're trying to pressure someone through an onslaught of stuff, right, to see the world your way. I'm just talking. Do you do you agree or disagree? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I, you know, my response to that one was, who has that kind of time? Time, right, right, right. I mean, I'm sorry. It's not that I don't care. Uh, clearly, we care about this issue, but... I mean, I have a job, like, and he's supposed to be an attorney. I mean, I don't know, like, is is he working on billable hours there? I mean, you know, that was so much energy. And so for me, it's, it really does come down to a personal thing. Like I sit there and I, I, I do a cost benefit analysis of like how I'm spending my time and right, right. Um, engaging in that, in that it's just that, that that's, I care too much about the individual than that I do to to um, try to impose my worldview on others. I just don't have That's the time it. for that. Impose your yeah yeah yeah. 
So you're you're not an ideologue. You're not you're not a dogmatist in that way. Right? I guess not. Like you can live, you can coexist with other opinions, right? Like it doesn't threaten you if someone disagrees with you. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. And to the extent that someone disagrees, you know, it's just like uh, you know. I mean, I'd like to talk about it. I'd like to know more. But there's like if there's no sure. need to win. It's like, okay, that's a very interesting like point of view. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. We don't have to agree to coexist. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not, yeah. not every discussion has to be a debate. Not every discussion has to be a win-lose situation. But that's, I mean, again, that goes back to what I was saying about everything's either or. You can't just go, yeah. I accept that you see that that way. That's the, how you come to the world. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And end of the day, like, yeah. I got yeah, other right. things to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> were you shocked when he came back from the diplomatic overture with that 10 paragraph response did that shock you a little bit oh my gosh that was so funny because i thought i was being so wise wink when yes I, yes so for our listeners i'm the one who gave wink you know I and mean, you already said this but just to reiterate a like sure. one paragraph i thought it was very diplomatic you know um saying along the lines like you know we see from different points of view and yeah. whatever that's okay yada yada right and so right. i thought that i thought that would be it like that's to me how i would like end a conversation that's why i proposed me it too. right right like right. i i appreciate I, you for being different yay you and the fact that he right. came back with 10 more paragraphs i was like well i guess i was wrong i guess <laughs> diplomacy doesn't always win the day and so then you went from, we went from diplomacy to That's you, you're true. like, and I love this because you kept on texting me. Can I be snarky now? Can I be snarky now? And I was like, hold off, just hold off. A yes, yes. Hold off before being snarky. So <laughs> finally it was like, oh my God, just like, I can't even, I can't even manage this anymore. Like, you know, if that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know what though? This is a good incident. Because it gives us like a nice little war story, right? Oh <laughs> Over the right. coming weeks and months. Seriously. <laughs> this is why it's so good to have you because I can have someone to, to bounce ideas off of and get perspective. <laughs> I agree. Right back at you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, may your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers.